The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 428. Marriage isn't a place where you compromise. Marriage is a place where you bump up against another person who's different than yourself, and you have an extraordinary and unique opportunity to grow. To say love is what makes a marriage work is like saying it takes oxygen to climb a mountain. Yes, oxygen is necessary, but not sufficient. Hi, I'm Jeff, and this is the Read to Lead podcast, the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. Yeah, we're talking about love today. Whether you're in a relationship or not, this is an episode you definitely want to stick around for. I believe that if you want to achieve true success in your business and in your life, that intentional and consistent reading is a must. As we know, it doesn't stop there. You have to take the next step and put what you learn into action. And the best way to do that is understanding how to take effective notes. Notes that when you come back to them actually amount to something that you can create with because you contributed to them when the moment counted. Notes that you can easily find. Knowing what notes to collect and what to decide to be selectively ignorant about. <laughs> because that's that's an important skill too. Especially with the amount of information coming at us today. Why do I mention that? It's because I want you to know about my next note-making mastery cohort. The first ever is happening as we speak as I take 20 students through the five-week cohort called Note-Making Mastery. We have started a waiting list for the next one, and you can get on it right now by going to readtoleadpodcast.com slash list. That's readtoleadpodcast.com. Dot com slash list. Put your name and email address inside the form, and that way you'll be notified first when the next note making mastery cohort is available for sign up. Again, that's read to lead podcast.com slash list. Today we're going to be sitting down with authors John David and Anna Gabriel Mann, authors of The Go Giver Marriage, a little story about the five secrets to lasting love. I'll be asking John and Anna about the foundation of their five secrets to lasting love, their take on the role of personal growth and development in a marriage relationship, how their advice applies really to all of your relationships and whether or not you're married, and much, much more. Let's get right to it, shall we? John David Mann is co-author of more than 30 books, including four New York Times bestsellers and five national bestsellers. His classic 2008 parable, The Go-Giver, co-authored with Bob Berg, who has been a guest on this show, I'm happy to say, earned the 2017 Living Now Book Awards Evergreen Medal, given for its contributions to positive global change. Anna Gabriel Mann earned her degree in clinical psychology before going on to serve as a celebrated educator, therapist, corporate trainer, speaker, and coach. She currently coaches Go-Giver Marriage clients and leads the Go-Giver Marriage Coaches training program, training coaches around the world. Their new book together is called The Go-Giver Marriage, a little story about the five secrets to lasting love. John, welcome to the Read to Lead podcast, sir. Hey, thank you. Pleasure to be here. My first time. And Anna, welcome to you as well. Thank you. Now, 
as I was reading about your book, one of the things right off the bat that kind of surprised me, especially as, as many books as John has written, you guys have been married how many years? Well, together 25, married 15. So I was a little bit surprised that this was the first book the two of you have written together. So I'd love to know, uh, being a um, co-author myself and having co-written a book just recently, you know, I've always had people who are experts say, Jeff, why did you do it that way? That's the hardest way to do it. I didn't know that going in. I didn't know any better. Uh, what was the process like for the two of you? Anna, I'll start with you. You know, it was really easy. And people think that writing a book together as a couple is like remodeling a house. You know, it's <laughs> like you're, you're going to argue about every little detail. Yeah, right. But the truth is, John's a brilliant writer, and I'm the first reader on every book he writes. Ah. And we have a really interesting balance. He knows that I'm a good editor and a good, a good initial reader, that I will give him amazing praise for where it's working. And I will also be very clear about the places where it's not. So when it comes to parables, he's brilliant. In fact, there are editors in New York that refer to him as the parable king of this generation. Um, You know, he's written with Spencer Johnson. He's written with David Bach. You know, he's written parables with Bob Berg. You know, his parables are beautiful. They're just exquisite and they work. And some parables don't. There's a reason why people don't like parables. A lot of them are really obvious. A lot of them don't work. So this is his best parable yet, in my opinion. And the second half of the book I wrote, and the second half of the book unwraps the parable Mm. and says, okay, we've shared these five secrets with you. Here's what they mean psychologically and developmentally. Here's why they work. And here's how you can put them to work in your relationship. And so, you know, it was really a 50-50 enterprise. We would go to our separate offices (laughs) and we would write. And about four in the afternoon, we would exchange documents and we would both add little edits and little thoughts. And then we would send them back. And, you know, then we'd go off and have dinner. You know, it was so easy. (laughs) Well, it sounds like the two of you really played to your strengths, the way you you divvied up responsibilities here. Uh, John, anything you would add to to what Anna said? Yeah, just that, you know, I've written, as you say, over 30 books, and and most of those, all but a few, have been co-authorships. I'm familiar with, you know, with working as a a team, with a tag team, and but I didn't know what that would be like with my wife. (laughs) <laughs> and and to be honest, I I wasn't sure. Like I wasn't sure I was ready to to share the uh, uh, share the writing room. I mean, usually she just kind of leaves me alone when I'm writing, and then she reads it after it's done. <laughs> and she had been saying for many years we should write together. And uh, honestly, I I sort of had like, well, yeah, I, I can see where that would be good, but would that would that work? <laughs> and um, I, I was just more than pleasantly surprised. I mean, it was it was phenomenal working with Anna. Uh, typically, when I when I work with another writer, I, I do the bulk of the writing. When mm. I work with with Bob or with Brendan Webb, my Navy Seal friend, or with Dan Burris, or with you know mm. David Bach, or something, whoever I'm writing with, typically what I do, I interview them. I kind of get their contribution, their concepts, their their stuff. I might read their writing. I might you know watch their lectures on on video, and then I close the door and I write, and I channel them to some degree, and I channel myself to some degree, and say so I I create a synthesis of them, but it's but it's it's my football. This, is, this writing is a solo process. Mm. I'm in control of the writing room. And uh, writing with Anna was completely different because we shared the writing room. I wrote the first half and she wrote the second half. And she took my first half and made it better. Um, the, the second half, originally, I thought it would be like a four or five page afterward. And as she was handing me drafts of pieces of, of the back part, and I was seeing it getting bigger and bigger and, and was... <laughs> Going into areas that I hadn't planned for it to go into, I, I realized she's she's making this into a, a, 
far better book than I could have done myself. Kind of like what marriage does. <laughs> I like how you put that. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that leads me to my next question. And I'll start with you on this one, John. Um, you know, many of us uh, know the Go-Giver brand, quote unquote. As I said, I've had Bob on the show to talk about that, that book. Did you find that fans of that book were, were clamoring for a book like this that takes some of those concepts and applies it to the marriage relationship? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I and mean, we even say it, in the, it somewhere in the, in, the, in the later part of the book that, that for years, people were saying, when are you going to do a book about relationships? Mm-hmm. When I penned the first draft of the original Go-Giver back in 2005, three years before the book came out, Anna read the first draft and said, this would make a great book on marriage. We had the idea for close to two decades now. It was Anna's idea. Um, it's been there. But yeah, people were. And honestly, the go-giver itself, you know, it's billed as a business book and it was nominally aimed at business audiences, a business marketplace, but it really didn't stay there. I mean, ra- within months of its coming out, we were seeing people using it in, in churches, in, mm-hmm. in, in family counseling services, in schools. There's a high school teacher who's been using it with his graduating class every year since 2009. Oh, wow. Um, so The Go-Giver was, was a business book that was more than a business book. It was about you know, the business of being a human being in a world of other human beings. But to specifically take The Go-Giver concept and spin it out in the world of relationships with a co-author who has expertise in the world of, of family and marriage, that was a whole new dimension for the Go-Giver. And people in the Go-Giver community, the readership of the, all the other Go-Giver books, have just gone nuts for the book. It, people mm. have just come out in droves, for the, which has really been gratifying. It's been really well-received. Well, Anna, I want to ask you about the, the foundation. We talked about, uh, I mentioned the five secrets to lasting love uh, being part of the subtitle. What's the foundation of that? Where did these secrets come from? Where did they originate? The secrets really come directly out of developmental theory. And developmental theory says that in its very simplest terms, what you needed as an infant and as a child, you still need as an adult. Mm. And there are specific things that you really need when you're a child growing up in order to turn into and become a very whole human being. And, you know, there are actually assessment scores for determining whether a child had, you know, substantial traumas during their childhood that interrupt their bond and that interrupt their sense of self. And those are things that really do impact people for the rest of their lives until they have either therapy or some kind of awareness practice that will actually help them to overcome those issues. And so marriages are the same. People arrive at a marriage with all the emotional baggage, if you will, from their childhood, whatever that might be. And mostly what that is, is patterns. You know, somebody might be very critical because they grew up under a critical parent. They might be very controlling because they spent a good portion of their life with an alcoholic parent feeling out of control. Um, And so people develop sort of rigid what we call adaptive behaviors, mm-hmm. you know, they're your child's essence trying to adapt to what was happening to you back then, but you carry those into your adulthood. And so I was making the effort to deepen the book so that it wouldn't just be seen as a sweet little parable about love, but rather something that has substantial psychological chops. And so each secret has not only the essence of what it meant as a child and what it means now, why it works, but it also um, employs its opposite. And we discuss the opposite. Like, for example, the first secret is the secret of appreciation. 
And appreciation, when it's delivered in a sincere and authentic way, is everything people want, because we all want to be seen, heard, understood, and appreciated. You know, it's that whole witnessing piece that we long for so much. It's why people strive to be social media mavens and and all these different things that people run after in order to be seen, in order to feel like they exist in the world and are visible. So the opposite of appreciation is really easy to see, but it's just quietly there in a lot of relationships. And that's criticism. You know, there you can pick on somebody in a hundred ways a day just to either straighten them up or correct them on something or say, you should have done it this way. I wish you had done it that way. Um, why do you always have to leave your socks on the, on the bedroom floor? You know, it's, it's subtle stuff, but it erodes relationships. I was uh, doing a half-day workshop earlier this week. After the workshop, we were doing some Q&A and the topic of marriage came up and, and they asked me the question along the lines of, how's your marriage lasted 20, almost 21 years? Uh, what's the secret? I'm like, when did I suggest I might be an expert in marriage? I'm not sure, <laughs> but apparently uh, they think this is a question I'm qualified to answer. One of the things that uh, we do, just one little little thing that we do that, that I love, she started it years ago, is she's bought this series of cards, these paper cards that have a, a, a loving message on one side of them, very colorful, very artistic. And we recycle those. We reuse them again and again. And so when one of us leaves town, which, which I had done, it's not unusual for the other then to find these little cards placed in places that we know the other is going to end up at at some point. And so <laughs> she was sending me pictures of the cards she had found, and she found three of the five on the first morning. And I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> there, there, there goes my didn't plan. Enough. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't plan enough of these. Um, well, I, I, I want to stick with you for this next one, Anna, and then we'll, we'll go to back to, to John. Uh, my wife and I can uh, probably count on one hand the number of books we've both read. What if one spouse reads this book and the other doesn't? You know, in other words, one of them is practicing the secrets that they still going to work. I love this question most of all, because um, my practice is filled with people where one person has read the, other, the book and the other one hasn't. And the truth is, it only takes one person in a marriage to change the entire tone of the marriage. So yes, one person can read it, and it makes an enormous difference. However, about 75% of the clients that I have that have only one of them has read it, by the time they've been coaching for six to eight weeks, the second spouse usually reads the book. And it's because if you are actually employing and practicing the secrets daily, the marriage really shifts and the goodness comes back at you like a boomerang. All of a sudden, your partner is just sort of waking up saying, what have you done with my husband or what have you done with my <laughs> wife? And some jokes start to happen. Texting and flirting on text starts to happen. And all of a sudden, there's this different feeling and both parties are having a good time. And the second party says, what was that book again that you read? I think I might need to check that out. Yeah. Related to that, in that same uh, training that I was doing, we we were talking about carving out time to work on yourself and how that can make a, a huge difference in the quality of your marriage, something that Anna was just, was just hinting at. What's your take, uh, John, on personal growth and development in a marriage relationship? Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of give a hint of this one in my my my, my earlier thing about the, yeah. the process of, of writing together and and mm -hmm. and how that actually caused me to stretch in ways I hadn't planned because I think marriage will do that. 
a lot of people, we see this, especially in couples who've been together for, you know, for longer than a decade, although you can see it in, in a couple who's been together for longer than six months, you know, and there's a certain shock factor when, when, when one person suddenly goes, oh, wow, I'm sharing my space with another person and now I can't like just do whatever I want. I, I can't like eat whatever I want, leave my socks wherever I want, leave them, watch my favorite TV shows whenever I want. It, it, it's like, a lot of people come to see marriage as a kind of compromise. And this is this can be a really sad thing and a really unfortunate and unnecessary. People will come to see marriage as kind of a, a, a benign arrangement whereby I give up sometimes and you give up sometimes and we compromise and we get along to go along. And in my view, in both of our views, that's nuts. That's, that's, that's settling for something mediocre in a situation where it could be glorious. Marriage isn't a place where you compromise. Marriage is a place where you bump up against another person who's different than yourself, and you have an extraordinary and unique opportunity to grow, to become a bigger, a bigger you than you ever could have been yourself. Let me just use an analogy for a second here, because we were talking earlier about writing. I turn in a manuscript for a book that I've written. I turn it into my, I'm working on a, on a draft right now of my third novel. And I just turned in my, the draft of my second novel last fall, which is now coming out in a few weeks. When I turned it in, my editor did what always happens. She read it and after a few weeks, gave it back to me and said, this is great. And this part doesn't, doesn't quite work. And I'm not sure this character works. And this passage doesn't really have the impact that you hoped it would. Doesn't have people. Here's, here's what I'd recommend. And I get her comments and I'm like crestfallen. I, I'll tell you, Jeff, I have, I will, I will say back, I'm going to get back to you in a couple of days. If you don't hear it from me, that's okay. It's not a bad sign because I can't process it. I, I need a couple of days to just sit with it because I'm, I'm crushed. It's like that. This is my baby. I thought it was perfect. <laughs> Been there. <laughs> and yeah, you've been there. You know this. And what happens, and it happens every time, is after a few days, in some cases it might take a week or longer, I'll start to be able to see what she's saying, the editor. And I get to a place of saying, not only can I see where what she's saying might be right, but now I'm seeing that if I implement the changes she's talking about, I can see a way to make this better. I can see a way to make it a better book. That happened with The Go-Giver Marriage. Anna made it a better book. That wasn't being facetious. This is for me what happens in marriage. You know, when when we bump up against the places in, in the relationship where we have to, you know, modify our behavior because there's, there's another person there, mm. you become a bigger person. You become a better version of you. There's a line in the book which says, when you work on a marriage, you don't work on the marriage. You work on yourself. Mm. And a lot of people think when they go into, say, marriage therapy, that what's going to happen is we're going to work on the other person. <laughs> we're going to get the other person straight. Been now. there too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, marriage is pretty good, but if they would just like, you know, do this a little differently, do that a little differently, then it would really be great. So well, maybe I can hire a marriage therapist to tell my spouse how, how they ought to be. And that, that isn't how it works. That's no. never, ever how it works. How it works is you grow, you grow yourself. You know, it, 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 unless you made a wildly terrible choice in the first place, 
in marriage, which does happen. People rush into marriage and they marry somebody that, that is in, in no way a match for them. And it was just a, a mistake. And that does happen. How many more times can I say been there? <laughs> <laughs> it's because you're right here. We're all right here because we've all been there. I, too, have been there. Uh, um, made a terrible mistake. Uh, and uh, unless that happens. And honestly, you know, in so many in the overwhelming majority of marriages, we chose a person that, you know, we made a good choice. That first thrall of love happened for a reason. It's just now that we're now that we're living in that in that relationship, it's going to make requirements of us that we grow to become a better person, bigger person. My uh, current wife, my second wife, my last wife. <laughs> <laughs> my final. This, this is my final answer. <laughs> my final answer. Uh, uh, yeah, we celebrate. It'll be 21 years next month. In my first marriage, there was a lot more take than give by, by both parties. Very much, uh, well, how much have you given versus how much have I given? It was never each person giving 100% without concern for what the other was or, or was yes. not doing. Um, there was nine years in between marriage. And when you add that to the 21 of the current marriage and you do the math, you realize, wow, that first marriage didn't last very long. I mean, it was <laughs> barely more than 21 months, let alone 21 years. Anna, what's one thing we might do to get away from that sort of scorekeeper mindset so as to transform the tone and the, and the quality of the marriage that John hasn't already so eloquently mentioned? <laughs> yeah, I think it's something you have to really become conscious of first, mm. um, because I think that people tune to the channel of me. You know, what's in it for me? W-I-I-F-M, everybody's favorite radio station. You got it. <laughs> you have it. And I think that it's hard to train, you know, for some people to train out of it. Mm. And as well, those same responses from childhood that I was talking about before, they really do have a grip. Most of us make decisions between 18 months of age and 24 months of age, the kind of color the way we perceive the world. Mm. And we kind of hold on to those perceptions. So, you know, if we have the sense that, you know, we're always last in line or we're, you know, people are out to get us or, you know, there, there's that scorekeeping mentality sort of stays there where you're really examining the world as if it's not fair. The truth about marriage is it isn't fair. But if you understand, you know, the, the fifth secret is about growing. And I think that the answer to the scorekeeper is in the fifth secret. Because personal growth is what the fifth secret's about. You know, the first four secrets are all about giving to your spouse, but the fifth secret is about giving to yourself. Mm -hmm. And that is everything from taking care of yourself so that your health isn't breaking down in your 50s and 60s. You know, make sure you're exercising and eating right and taking care of yourself. Because if not, you're a drain on the marriage later on. And the same goes for personal development and personal growth. If you're not growing, then you're stagnating. And when you're not growing, the marriage is stagnating. So in order to get out of that scorekeeper, you have to grow yourself. You have to become, as John said, a bigger version of yourself that actually thinks in terms of generosity and in terms of the original go-giver concept, which is adding value to another person's life for the sheer joy of doing it. And the piece that people really struggle with is the boomerang effect. It is going to come back to you. If you practice generosity in your relationship, you will be shocked and amazed at how much it comes back to you. I'm going to just, um, if I can mention another one of the secrets here, which is secret number four, which is believe. The, the, uh, secret number four is to not only believe in your spouse, your partner, that is to appreciate 
not just the things they do, the way they are, the way they look, the way they behave, but the very core of who they are, their essence is to, but it's not just to believe them, but to express that, to let them know that you completely believe in them. So there is a quality in the relationship. I think that when you establish, it helps deal with that scorekeeper. And that is this unshakable sense that the other person's got my back. Mm. I, even when, even if we're cranky, even if we didn't sleep well, even if one of us is in the bad mood or one of us had a hard day, or even if there are some real difficulties going on in our lives, there's financial pressure. Even if all the things, all the terrible things that have ever happened to Jeff happened to you, uh, <laughs> you know, whatever the circumstances are that we're dealing with in the day to day, if there is this underlying knowing that she's got my back, she knows I've got her back, even in the moments when we're not expressing it, it's kind of like if you built up a bank account of faith in the other person, a bank account of belief in the other person that during the, and we, we build these during the easy times. And this is really important to do. Because when the tough times come, you need a savings account to draw on so that you know that even if it feels like, you know, I've done the dishes not six times this week, but like 16 times this week. And I, you know, normally we share the cooking, but I've done all the cooking or I've done all the housework or I've been the one who's had to cheer him up or her up. Like, I think I counted eight and a half times this week and she only (laughs) cheered me up twice. Even in those times, you know, you know what, though? She's got my back. She believes in me. That core, uh, underlying core of, of we're on the same team, we're on the, in the same corner, that, that helps you let go of that scorekeeper. You know, each of the five secrets will actually address the scorekeeper. And I want to go back to mm. secret number one. When you are authentically appreciating your partner, it can be small things. It can be that, you know, let's say, Jeff, that you take out the trash every single week and your wife never has to think about it. Mm-hmm. But in that moment when she stops you and says, you know, I never thank you for taking the trash out and I never let you know how much I appreciate that I don't have to even think about it. Mm-hmm. But I really want you to know it's like, you know, you're just such a constant in terms of being a partner and in terms of being helpful to keeping our house running. And I just so appreciate that about you. You know, appreciation, again, as I said, is the opposite of criticism. And criticism is really that that little thing that will just shred a relationship. It's death by a thousand cuts. Mm -hmm. And it will keep the scorekeeper alive. Because when you're criticizing, you're neurologically looking for things to be critical of. And when you're appreciating you're neurologically looking for those lovely things that happen every day that are just sweet that you appreciate. Well, guys, I like to think that there aren't too many pessimists in the read to lead audience. I think uh, most of my listeners are, their mindset is such that they are abundance type people. But let's assume for the sake of argument right now that there's a pessimist listening. Anna, is what you shared on this boomerang concept the answer to someone saying or asking, doesn't all this giving tend to just leave the other person drained and and empty eventually? Yeah, that's a phenomenal question and one that we've answered a lot. And um, it would seem like that would be true, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't. And I'll tell you why. Again, it comes down to the neurobiology of it. When you are staying in the positive vein, the way to get rid of a negative habit, both in yourself and in your partner, is for you to stay in the positive side of it. When you stay in the five secrets, you're, you're creating a groove in your brain that 
says, I'm looking, I'm looking for five ways that I appreciate my wife today. I'm looking for five ways that I appreciate my husband today. Mm. Um, And when you do that, and when you do the second, the third, the fourth, you know, there's four secrets there that are all about looking for ways to serve and to take care of your partner. um, You will find that they will warm up first. Then they'll start saying things, you know, I had one husband of a client that came home spontaneously with flowers. And when she said, oh, how nice, you've got flowers. And he, all he could say to her was, I don't know what's going on, but you've just been so sweet to me lately. And I haven't brought you flowers in 10 years. And I just realized that I need to start bringing you flowers. <laughs> you know, and she was like, she came back to the next session going, what have you done? You know, because he hadn't read the book. Yeah. And, you know, he didn't even intend. What is this black magic? <laughs> he didn't intend to read the book. So, yeah, she was giving, you know, she made him chocolate chip cookies and put them in his lunch. You know, I mean, she was giving. Yeah. She was attending to him. But, you know, he was attending to her, too. Like, you know, he did a whole lot of her things on the honeydew list. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was just started to become about mutuality and about how can I take care of what you need? Because you're just being so sweet and so nice and so kind to me and taking care of my needs. So many husbands, and I'm going to pick on husbands here for a minute because this this is me as much as it is anybody, but so many husbands are like, I'll do whatever you want. All you got to do is ask. But our wives don't want to have to ask. They want us to take the initiative. And I know I know the big, biggest difference in, in, in my marriage or one of the biggest differences in my marriage is, is when I do things, little things, like empty the dishwasher or whatever, without my wife having to ask me to do them. It's in those times where she, where she comes to me, like you were saying earlier on, and she tells me how much she appreciates I did this thing or, or that thing. Probably the single greatest thing I've ever done in our marriage is take a post-it note, write the word perfect on it. I got this idea from a book and put it over the screen on the scale. <laughs> and that was like <laughs> the, the greatest thing I could have ever done. That's pretty smart. <laughs> that, that, I, mean, I mean, that raised the way my wife saw me for a long time. Uh, but, you know, as she is quick to tell me, just because I do something like that doesn't mean, you know, I get to coast. <laughs> the, the slate is wiped clean the next day yeah. and you start over, right? So you do start each, each day fresh. <laughs> There's this little story in the, in the book, you know, for those who haven't read it, the first half of the book is a parable. It's a modern day parable about a young couple named Tom and Tess. And we follow them each through a day in their lives when they're facing some, some major challenges. Uh, their marriage, by the way, is not in crisis Exactly, but it's but it's not but there's cracks in the foundations. Let's just say yeah. that they're deeply in love, but still, it's not perfect because that's where a lot of people are. Their marriage isn't in crisis; they're not in divorce court, but yeah, but it's like a nagging cough that you suspect could get worse. Mm. So, in any case, Tess in her day meets a, a series of, of women who share their stories about marriage, and one of them has a story about her first marriage. She's divorced now. First marriage in which her husband used to give her gifts all the time. He would give her jewelry. He would give her gold jewelry. She didn't particularly like gold. She said, I'm a silver girl. And then um, she had a business partner after the divorce. Years later, she had a business partner. And one day they were celebrating their first anniversary of, of their business together, just, just friends, business partners. And he gave her just a little gift as a, as a celebration gift. And it was a little silver earrings. And she burst into tears mm. because she said, I never told him that I like silver. So it, he just somehow knew. He noticed. So if you went to your wife, if you go to your wife and say, honey, I want to get you some earrings. What do you like, gold or silver? And she goes, I like silver. He goes, okay, well, I'll get you silver. Hey, how come we aren't happy with the earrings? Uh, 
It ain't the earrings. Yeah. And here is the secret. Here's the answer to your question. It's not the earrings. It's the paying attention. Yeah. It's the noticing. When you do something without your wife asking, it shows that you're paying attention, that you're taking the time and the care and you're putting out the energy and the effort to study her like a subject in college. <laughs> There's a line in the book that every person is an undiscovered continent. I want to find out what kind of jewelry she likes. So I'm going to investigate. That's one of the things you do when you love somebody. You learn about them because you find them fascinating. You want to know more about them. You want to know what they love, what they love less, what they love more, what they want, what makes them feel relaxed, what makes them feel rewarded at the end of a hard day, what takes the pressure off, you know? It's different for everybody. And you need to know the particulars of that person. That's why the whole appreciation thing that I was talking about, it doesn't work to say, honey, you look terrific today. Well, great. Thank you. Yeah, you too. What does that mean? You have to be specific about it because the specifics is where the, is where the, the attention shows. And, and the leading researchers on marriage will tell you that empathy and the ability to extend empathy is really one of the key factors in successful relationships. And it's things like your partner comes through the door, they had a hard day, you can see that they had a hard day. So you don't have to fix that. And you don't have to try to ignore it or, or help them process it. You know, they had a hard day. One of the best things that you can do is to say, it's clear to me that you had a rough day. You may not be ready to talk about it right now, but can I get you a glass of wine? Would you like to go sit on the deck for 20 or 30 minutes and I'll bring you a plate of cheese and crackers mm. and just chill and I'll take care of everything in here. Just take some time for yourself. Look at the both of us, Jeff, right now. Aren't we both kind of going like, oh, yeah. No, I'll write that down. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And frequently, you know, John will come out of his office when he's on serious deadlines and, you know, the pressure's on. He'll come out of his office and I can tell he's been banging his head on the writing wall for a couple <laughs> of hours and he's not getting anywhere. Been there, right? um, and it's the same thing. I don't try to process it or fix it or try to analyze it with him. The question is, what can I do to make your day better? Can I make you a cup of tea? Can I get you something? Can I just like put you back in the room and shut the door? And, and uh, you know, what's going to be the best thing for you right now? Do you want to take a quick walk? You know, and sometimes he'll want to take a quick walk and just, but by himself. Because he wants to process, he wants to think, but he needs a change of scenery. Yeah. So, you know, it's just like if, if you can be attuning, that empathy, that attunement is so powerful. And that's a big part of the concept of the go-giver marriage is yeah. paying attention. You know, we talked about everybody's favorite radio station earlier. Uh, I'm thinking about the single person who's listening right now who's thinking, what's, what's in it for me? Anything? Uh, how, how would you respond to that, uh, John? Well, it, it, there, there are a few simple things first. If you're single, the chances are good that you have been in a relationship. And what the goal of a marriage can do is help you understand what has happened in the past so that you can have a more positive future. Um, second thing is that if you're single, the chances are good that you're going to be in a relationship. And it would be, it would just do our hearts good if lots and lots of people read The Go-Giver Marriage and took it to heart before they got married. <laughs> <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> yeah. How about that? Wouldn't that be wonderful? We, we give it as wedding presents. But beyond that, I'm also going to say that th these principles work in other relationships too, not just marriage. And for people who have been in a long-term relationship where 
intimacy may feel like, you know, like maybe you've got kids that are two, four, and seven, and, you know, intimacy is not what it used to be because there's a bunch of little kids running around the house and, you know, somebody's got to get their teeth brushed and get them to bed and read stories. And, you know, everybody's so tired when it's all over, they collapse and go to sleep. I feel like, um, you know, this question comes up for me a lot in my practice and a lot in, in talking about the book. What about intimacy? Where does that come in the, in the scorekeeping and in the, you know, how do we negotiate this so both parties are happy? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I like to say is that low libido and or the overwhelm from life and the conditions of kids and family and doesn't have a, a, you know, a place on either side of the fence. It affects men and women. There are just as many men with low libido as there are women with low libido. But one of the things that I try to encourage couples to remember is that what if, just like all of these little actions are little gifts, they're little behavioral gifts. What if you put intimacy on the calendar for at least once a week, maybe twice? Research has shown that the average man in America is thrilled to have time in the bedroom twice a week. So I say that with great understanding that some people might want more than that. But what I'm suggesting is that if it's been something that keeps getting backburnered because of life, put it on the calendar, make a decision to make it a gift. And then as you enter into that realm of the bedroom, be generous, be giving, be concerned about the other person's experience, and you will find that your own is very rich. And so I share that as well, because I think that there's just so many factors in life. People lose their jobs. They have a miscarriage. All of a sudden, there's three kids in a row and life is chaos. And then there's a shooting at a school and you don't want to send your six-year-old to school because you're terrified. Mm. You know, there's just so much going on in this world right now. And I think that it's important for people to be able to have that warmth and compassion and that empathy for each other around the circumstances, but also to treat even the smallest acts like a gift. I want to do this for you right now. John puts a cup of tea on the bedside table at 7 a.m. every morning. He doesn't have to. He leaves his writing room, which he goes to at 4.30 in the morning, goes to the kitchen, makes me a cup of tea, drops it off, and then he goes back to his office. It's such a small thing, but it's such a big thing because it makes me feel so loved and so attended to. I don't even charge for it. It's amazing. (laughs) Back to your uh, comment on scheduling intimacy. I'm a big believer in what gets scheduled gets done. So amen to (laughs) scheduling that too. It's so true. And I said that specifically for the pessimist in the audience who's like, yeah, yeah, I hear you. But, you know, it's like it's been a dead zone around here. And you know, it's so common. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really common. And, and it happens a lot with families with young kids. And I, and I, you know, it happened in my own marriage when my children were little, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. you're just exhausted. You're chasing around these little, as we used to call them, the little beasts, <laughs> you know, you're trying to keep everything together, as well as the house and the laundry and the food and, and uh, chaos is breaking out every five minutes. And especially after 5 p.m. at night. So, you know, you fall into bed and say, maybe tomorrow, hon, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Well, this might be a tough question to answer. If you had to pick one of the secrets, is there one that's a favorite of yours? It is a tough question because they're all different. I mean, it's kind of like the five laws of stratospheric success in the go-giver, the original go-giver. But if I had to pick one that was my favorite, I would actually pick the third which we haven't really spoken about, and I, I can't do justice to probably in, in such a short time, but I'll just say a few words about it. We call it allow, 
And what allow means, it's kind of like giving the other person a little grace, give them space, is let them have a little bit, little bit of, uh, you know, time on their own or whatever it is that they need to process whatever it is they're dealing with. It is the opposite of the scorecard. Allow is put, it, put away the notion that marriage is fair and just be a little giving. A little more giving than seems fair. Knowing, having the faith that what you're really doing is you're not giving from me to her, you're giving from me to us. We talk about feeding the us versus starving the us. There's this us between us, which is like an independent third entity in the room. We, we describe it as a tree, the marriage itself or the relationship itself. Allowing is putting aside the issue of you versus me, me and you, who gets more, who gets less, and just focusing on, the, on, on giving to the us-ness of us. Mm. Uh, and that's my favorite uh, secret because the, it's the opposite is control. And the, so many people have control issues. They try to control the relationship. They expect what I was talking about at the very beginning of this interview. You say marriage is about fixing the other person. No, it's not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't control the other person. All you can do is grow yourself. So what you really have to do is allow them to be who they are and do a little work on who you are. I like that new word you invented, usness. Usness. Uh, Anna, what about you? What I wanted to add to that was a real life example. Almost 10 years ago, I broke my leg in a compound fracture. And I went from being somebody who ran every day and was really active and did a lot around our house to being somebody who couldn't get a glass of water across the room. And because it was a very serious compound fracture, it took a year and a half to heal. Oh, wow. Um, and, and surgeries and all kinds of stuff. And so John had to pick up the slack. I mean, he, I always made dinner. I always did the shopping. I, you know, there were a lot of things that were just things that I enjoyed doing. So I did them mm. and he had to do them because I couldn't. And that's what allow is also. It, it's, mm. it's about letting somebody be who they are. But there will be moments where, you know, if your wife is recovering from a miscarriage, you know, you may be ready to go and start trying to have kids again, but she might still be feeling like her body's a failure and she's grieving and she's not there yet. Mm. Um, and it's, it just means you have to relax and allow for what's happening and be in a state of grace about it. Like John never whined. He didn't complain. He was like, well, I don't have time to shop. You know, can't you use the wheelchair at the store? You know, I mean, he was really just graceful about it. Uh, you know, we're going through some of that right now. My wife had COVID in February. Then later it was determined has long COVID. Oh yeah. And so Mm -hmm. she has days that are normal. And then she has days where it's like, she's got COVID symptoms all over again. And so there's very much been a shift in like who does what and what she can do or can't do, or maybe she can do this on one day, but then on the day she needs to do it, she can't do it. And so I've got to step in. I don't know if I'm pulling my weight quite yet, but uh, uh, I'm, I'm learning how to along the way. We'll put it that way. Yeah. I want to ask a couple of questions, not directly related to the book, but before I do that, guys, could I get maybe a book recommendation? Put you on the spot. You're like, Jeff, I don't read nonfiction. What are you- <laughs> no, it, it, no, it's the funny thing about it. I, I've actually written articles that say, you know, all I write is nonfiction and all I read is fiction. But I, don't, I don't say that anymore because now I'm writing fiction. So, <laughs> but actually, here's, here's a, um, it, it's, it's both a nonfiction book and it's, a, it's, it's not a parable, but it's, it's almost in the style of a parable. Mm-hmm. And it came out, I don't know, 15 years ago. So it's not a new book. But it's one a lot of people don't know about, and it's an incredibly powerful book. It's by Seth Godin, who is one of all of our favorite business authors, marketing authors. Hey, been there. Um, 
yeah, all marketers are liars and so mm-hmm. on and so forth. What wonderful books he's written. But this little book is called The Dip. And it's about the size of the go-giver. It's physically about the same little, little hardcover book, a blue and white book. And I think the subtitle is um, Winners Know When to Stick and When to Quit mm-hmm. or something like that. That's the concept of it. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's just like a, you know, it's like a Malcolm Gladwell book where it takes an idea like Blink or an idea like The Tipping Point. It takes a simple idea and spins it in a way that is so easy to grasp, entertaining to read, and so powerful to implement. It's magnificent life advice as well as business advice. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's beautifully applicable to marriage, although that's not why I, exclusively why I recommend it. You know, we've often heard the expression in, in, an, in an argument in a marriage, would you rather be right or happy? <laughs> yeah. You know, he takes this whole idea of winners never quit and says, oh yeah, uh-uh, not true. Winners quit all the time. But they know they know how to pick their fights. They know how to they know when to stick and when to quit. Then and, and, and how to tell the difference in those situations. Brilliant little book. One of the greatest accomplishments I would say of my life. First of all, it was another Seth Godin book that reignited, rekindled the fire in me, uh, and, and and what had been dormant for years. My love of reading. Ah, which one? A book called Purple Cow. Oh yeah. Uh, yes. And so talk about a full circle moment. The first of two times I had him on this show. And then the pinnacle was him agreeing to endorse my book last ah. year. So that was just like, when you wow. talk Seth Godin, I'm like, oh yeah. I mean, there's, that's, 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 that's so my great. favorite. I mean, you guys are up there too, but Seth is like, you know. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I understand. <laughs> Death is in the stratosphere. All right, right. What about you, Anna? Uh, a favorite book uh, that you, uh, you would recommend? Well, I, I loved The Dip. So I just want to say that first off. I mean, The Dip is actually one of yeah. my favorites of Seth's books. So you're saying that uh, your husband stole your answer. He didn't steal my answer. <laughs> no, I actually was afraid he was going to because he knows what book uh, I absolutely okay, adore. Okay. I really love The Alchemist. Yes. And the reason that I love it, because it, it really appeals to the coach in me, that at the beginning of every coaching session, I sort of hold a context for my client. And my most powerful context for every person is that they are wives beyond measure and that they have their own answers. Wow. And to me, the alchemist is the ultimate personal growth story. He goes out into the world and he learns many things. But when he comes home, what he comes home to is that the treasure was really right beneath him or within him. And I think that when people go on a personal growth journey, if they're really earnest in their desire to open the gates to their own success mm. and to their life, really reflecting the power of what it can reflect and be, that personal growth journey is really powerful and it's really where it's at. Wow. Yeah. Those are both books that I love, The Dip and The Alchemist. I'll add one thing to it. And that is that because we're talking about marriage, it's like, You know, it's sometimes I think that when people look at a book like The Go-Giver Marriage and there's these five secrets, they think, oh, how charming, you know, (laughs) but they don't actually take the five secrets. You know, we're making an app right now to put the five secrets into action for people to make it sort of simple and easy where you can get reminders and things like that and Mm -hmm. thousands of ideas that we've acquired from clients, honestly. Mm -hmm. But it's really one of those things that if you practice it, it's such a huge and powerful shift that that's how I feel about the alchemist. It's like that personal growth journey of actually taking on the practice of paying attention and looking to discover where the treasure really is. Mm -hmm. The treasure can be right there in the middle between you and your relationship. 
if you allow it to open up and find it. I want to end on a question that I hadn't planned to ask, and, and I'm going to direct this to, to you, John. And if Anna, if you have anything you want to add, by all means do. Something I have been delving into in the last few months is this sort of concept of personal knowledge management. It's sort of um, getting things done for researchers, for the authors among us, the creators among us. Um, how do you manage your personal knowledge in such a way that when you need it, you can access it in today's notes, talk to last year's notes, and and all of that sort of thing. Um, as a prolific author, um, I'd be curious to know maybe what some of your techniques are, a very tactical question here, what some of your techniques are for managing your knowledge. Is it as much of it by hand? Are you using certain apps? You're doing research all the time, I would assume, for stories and books and ideas. How do you manage it all? Yeah, there's, there's really sort of, I guess, two kinds of information management in that sense, knowledge management, which is different as you quite rightly says, than information. Information is like phone numbers and dates. That's not talking about that. Knowledge management, meaningful content management. The first thing I'd say is that I I hope, and I hope this is useful, but I often find I get some of my best ideas or I articulate some of the ideas that feel most meaningful to me or most useful to me when I'm in the middle of talking to somebody else. (laughs) When I'm doing a podcast, mm-hmm. when I'm in an interview, when I'm in a coaching call with somebody, talk, or, or when I'm uh, writing email, often uh, in the middle of an email, there will be some thought that I didn't know I had. And so what I've learned to do is to pay attention to that. And for you, you may have noticed twice during our podcast right now, I've, I've actually been writing down a few things that someone just said, <laughs> which I will keep. I keep little journals of things that we said during a podcast, during a teaching session, whatever. And I compile those and I use a very sophisticated app. It's this. For those of you who are listening, I am holding up a ballpoint pen. Uh, <laughs> I, I scribble on pads of paper and then I put it into a Microsoft Word document. Mm. Then the other thing is, is, is research, is real, uh, uh, you know, substantial reams of knowledge management. And you're right, I'm doing lots of research for books. For a parable, there's, there's much less research on places, customs, countries, topics, techniques, fields of art than there is, say, for a novel. But there's still a bunch, even mm-hmm. for a parable. I'll do a bunch of research. I'm just really scrupulous with my files. I just use Microsoft Word in folders, in folders, in folders. Mm-hmm. But I'm really, really careful with what I name files or what I name folders. And I'm constantly paying it. I put a bunch of my time into the organization of my stuff. Mm-hmm. Because when I'm writing and just today, I had to refer back to an early draft of a novel I wrote three years ago mm. because I needed a passage that I remember I, I edited out. I need to go back and see what that passage is because I might be able to use it right now in this new novel. Mm. So I had to find the particular draft it was in, and I could do it inside 90 seconds because I put a lot of energy into, into my, my, my files of my Word documents. And I couldn't, I couldn't exist without that. I'm actually walking a number of my listeners right now through what I've dubbed a note-taking mastery cohort. Uh, and since mm. writing my book, I've discovered that one of the biggest areas of struggle for people is either taking notes, knowing what to capture, how much to capture, but probably more yes. than that is is making use of them later. So many people have books full of notes or, or notebooks full of notes or an Evernote full of notes, <laughs> an app yeah, notes. yeah. And they never go back to them. And it's, it's, it's almost as if you, you, you might have been better off saving that time and not consuming that book or other content in the first place if you're never going to go back and use those notes. So I'm trying to help people solve that, that problem and was curious to know kind of what some of your uh, techniques were. I was just going to add that something I've done is, you know, in the last few years is I'll read, I might read, say, four or five, six books 
mm-hmm. in preparation for writing a certain book. Right. And I'll read it on the Kindle app on my phone and highlight passages that, are, that might be meaningful to me. Then what I do is I go back and on my laptop, I open up the Kindle app on my laptop and I go from highlight to highlight to highlight and I copy paste, copy paste, copy paste mm-hmm. all the highlighted passages into a Word doc. And then I have my four or five page cliff notes of my own making on that particular book of passages that were meaningful to me. And I use them. I use them when I write the book. It's really, really helpful. So it, it takes, here's, here's the bottom line for me. It takes a little extra energy and effort and organization. It's so worth it. And I think that's what people don't understand. They look at some, like what you just described and go, that's a lot of work. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, but if you're taking all the notes and then you never do anything with them, then you, you wasted that time. So why not put a little effort in the front end? Anna, anything you want to uh, add to that or, or tell John why he's, why he's wrong? <laughs> we, are, we are the same in that um, area. For me, I'm always gathering little tidbits of psychological bites, if you will, that really are apply. Um, you know, just to give an example, the difference between a psychoanalytical viewpoint and a cognitive behavioral viewpoint, you know, it's like one is really looking at the way you think and then the way you take that into action. The other is just endlessly analyzing. And it's not to say that one is right, and the other is wrong, but I have my own viewpoint of how we neurologically shift. And there's just a great deal of, of research and understanding. So I tend to go back into the neurobiology of things and really examine how do we process things? Because that's what's really critically important to me. I don't want to help people circle their tail endlessly. I want to be able to give them solutions that work. And so I'm constantly keeping notebooks, but then transferring it into files and organizing those files so that the next book has really got stuff that's very, very real and very solid. Good advice. Thank you for that. Well, we've been talking with uh, John David Mann and Anna Gabriel Mann, husband and wife, by the way, if you hadn't picked up on that already. Uh, we're so <laughs> thankful that uh, that you uh, have joined us. The book, again, is The Go-Giver Marriage, a little story about the five secrets to lasting love. Anna, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. And John, likewise. Thank you so much, Jeff. A pleasure. I have recently made the wise decision of connecting with both Anna and John on social media, and you can too. I've added links to their social profiles on the show notes page for this episode, where you'll also find links to their book and the books they recommended, The Alchemist and The Dip. All of that is at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 428 for episode 428. Again, that's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 428. You can also find information there and a link to get notified, to get your name on the list for my next note-making mastery cohort. You can also go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash list directly to put your name on the waiting list to be notified for the next note-making mastery cohort coming up this fall. In the hopper, I've got Donna Serdula. She's written a book called LinkedIn Profile Optimization for Dummies that is even for smart people like you. And also Tim Shure will talk about his book, The Secret Society of Success. That's in a couple of weeks. And next week, it's Noah St. John as we discuss his book, Millionaire Affirmations, as opposed to Affirmations. He'll have more as to what that's about. That's next time on the Read to Lead podcast. That does it for this time. I hope to see you next time. Until then, as always, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Read to Lead.